Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the virtual voyage, we were at Jacob's Well in Shechem, here in Israel. We talked for a while about the significance of Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well, because that was just something that wasn't done in Jesus's culture. Jews and Samaritans did not cross paths, but Jesus is kind of implicitly clear that he's not there to cause trouble with this woman or to play into the cultural, uh, the cultural stereotypes, I guess you could say. He was there to offer her living water, salvation from her sins. It's actually interesting to consider this concept of living water in terms of a practice that we're all probably familiar with, or maybe at least we've heard of it. It's, it's baptism. And there are some different ideas of what baptism actually does to a person when they're baptized. In some churches, it's a sacrament that's needed for salvation. In other churches, infant baptism is practiced, and in some churches, adults are baptized. And so I won't get into the theology of baptism, but regardless of your beliefs concerning it, baptism is kind of the picture of living water. It is representative of the cleansing work that Jesus did that gives all men the chance to be immersed and come out clean. No longer does God see man as dirty and stained, but because of Christ's work on the cross, all people, including this Samaritan woman we've been talking about, have the opportunity to be baptized into salvation, that is, to immerse themselves in Christ's sacrificial work. So there's a lot more to Jesus' use of the term living water than we see at face value. I mean, yes, it's a good term considering he's sitting in front of this well, and the woman is probably wishing she didn't always have to come here and carry water back and forth simply because she got parched or the people she was serving got parched. I mean, goodness, that had to have gotten heavy. So she would have loved to hear about water that would never make her thirsty again. But I think Jesus is also carefully picking his words. He talks about living water because, yes, it will never make one thirsty again. But also think about what water does. Not only does it quench our thirst, but it also cleanses us. I mean, think about why we take showers, right? Because water is cleansing. That's why when we got back from our Dead Sea adventure, we took a shower to wash off the salt. Or when we finished our hike on Masada, we took a shower. But the effects of physical water we use on Earth to wash off last only so long, right? Why did you have to take a shower after the Masada hike and after our time at the Dead Sea? Because you got dirty both times. So the effects are not long lasting, just like the effects of water we drink in the same way, the effects of our, of our showers. But living water actually quenches the thirst in one's soul and it washes their sins away, so much so that God will never see the dirt of sin on a person and judge them for it, but rather he sees them as, as Christ essentially, and he sees 
Christ's work covering them. Like a shower, right? Christ's work just runs over them and he will not judge a saved person for their sins. So Jesus, the giver of living water, took the judgment of the world. He took the dirt of the world so that humanity, including you and me, didn't have to. Last time we also talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan and why Jesus' choice of characters in the parable was so deliberate. We had a Jew on the road needing help, but two Jews pass him by. It's only when the nemesis of the Jews comes along, a Samaritan, that the man is helped. And of course, this would have seemed crazy to Jesus' audience. How could a Samaritan help a Jew? Well, the Samaritan was obeying Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. And if someone is in your life, as we learned last time, it is your duty as their neighbor to love them. You know, sharing biblical context on tours is one of my favorite parts of leading groups here in Israel. I mean, doesn't it make the Bible seem so much more real? And then it makes the Bible make more sense. Of course, this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is a good reminder for us. No matter how much we dislike someone, we are to love them as we love ourselves. But it wouldn't make sense without context, or it wouldn't make as much sense without context. Jesus uses this extreme example, a Jew and a Samaritan. I mean, these two groups of people hated each other. But he uses that example to illustrate that, yes, it's actually possible to love people you thought you could never love. And I don't know about you, but when I learned more about the context of this parable, uh, it made it all the more convicting. So we had a pretty awesome tour last time, getting to see Jacob's well and even enjoy some refreshing water from it, although it was not living water. When I say that I believe Jesus was right there at that very location, I mean it. I would say that the chance that that is the authentic site um, on the, uh, let's, let's look at the authenticity meter, right? I'd say that it would score in the high 90s, so A to A+. And of course, the Eastern Orthodox Church that we saw first and then we had to go down underneath it, that was a later addition. That wouldn't have been there in the time of Jesus, obviously. But that church actually strengthens the claim that that location is Jacob's well. We've seen churches built around sacred and authentic locations uh, before. There's actually one important place in Jerusalem I'm thinking of that comes to mind. Uh, we visited it. Do you, do you know the site that I'm talking about? Church built over a site that we believe to be authentic. Well, it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So the place where, where the Golgotha rock stood, the place where Jesus is said to have died. And only a few hundred years pass between Jesus' death on the cross and then the arrival of an important someone in Jerusalem, and this was Constantine's mother, so the mother of the emperor. right? So she comes to, to Jerusalem and she wants to know where Jesus died. And so when she arrives, she asks the Romans that very question. And I got to say, it's not likely that they forgot the location of the crucifixion. Uh, we have to remember that Jesus was not special when he was crucified. He was seen as just a regular criminal who needed to be crucified because he had done something wrong. But the crucifixion was the Roman special and horrible invention of a method of execution. 
And so they carried out many executions a little outside of Jerusalem. They didn't want to do it inside the walls of the city. So Jesus would have probably been crucified at these execution grounds. So needless to say, even 200 years after Jesus' death, those execution and body dumping grounds, they would have been known. And you can bet that the Romans would not have lied to Constantine's mother about the spot of the executions and the spot where the bodies were dumped. So surely it it seems that they would have taken her to the correct spot for the execution of criminals, which is the spot where Jesus was also crucified. And then at that spot, even though it was a, a few hundred years later, Constantine's mother constructed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And now it's likely that the actual Golgotha rock of Jesus's crucifixion stands in that area. It's probably not the rock that everyone walks up and touches as as we learned ourselves when we went to that church, but it's probably a few dozen feet below the floor of the church, but again, general vicinity. So that's a bit uh, tangential, but that's your example to back up my claim that churches built over a site can be a good piece of evidence to prove the site is authentic. So I believe the same applies to Jacob's well. The tradition of this being Jacob's well was passed down generation to generation. And because it's such a special site where Jesus himself was believed to have been, a church was then built over it. Well, now we're back on the bus here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. And we just have to drive a few minutes over to the next stop, which is Joseph's tomb. On our way over, let's work on our Hebrew. I want to say how happy I am with everyone's effort as we start to learn Hebrew. You all are gaining some mastery of the phrases we've learned so far, and I've even heard a few of you testing them out on some locals we've met on our tours uh, by asking them if they know English. One of you, uh, I was very proud, even responded that I know a little Hebrew. In Hebrew. I had a wide smile on my face when I heard that. But for everyone's benefit, let's review what we've learned so we don't forget. I know when I was first learning these phrases, I needed to drill them a lot. So, the first phrase we learned was, do you understand English? A a key phrase that we should know to be able to ask people if they understand English so that we can move the conversation from Hebrew to English and actually get somewhere. So we learned that when you ask that uh, for a guy, you would ask, Ata mavin inglit? Ata mavin inglit? And then for a girl, you have to change the gender of the word. You would say, At mevina inglit? At mevina inglit? And then we learned about some interpretive words like low, meaning no, Ken, meaning yes, and katsat, which means a little. So what if you wanted to say, I understand a little Hebrew? When I first learned this phrase, I had a lot of fun in the back of the tour bus where my siblings and I would go back and forth, you know, asking each other if we understood some Hebrew and then saying, yes, I understand a little. Katsat, katsat, hevri. Anyways, I understand a little Hebrew for a guy is going to be ani mavin. Kitsat hevrit. Ani mavin kitsat hevrit. And then for a girl, it is ani mevina kitsat hevrit. Ani mevina 
Kitsat Hevrit. Now for today's phrase, we're going to learn how to add to the conversation just a little bit. So far, you would be able to carry on a small conversation with someone in Hebrew if you were to start by asking them if they understand English. Maybe you would be able to understand one of the interpretive words, uh, like lo, ken, or kitsat, and then following that, you could end the conversation by saying, you understand a little Hebrew. But at least in the United States, uh, I guess maybe it's, we're infamous for it. I guess you could say, what's our favorite way to open any conversation? How are you? So we're going to learn to say that in Hebrew. So for a guy to ask, how are you? You're going to say, mashlomek, mashlomek. And for a girl to ask, how are you? It's going to be, so notice again the subtle difference. Shlomek versus shlomka. That's used to get across gender, right? The, the former was masculine and the latter was feminine. And so you can respond in two ways. Well, I, I guess you could say a lot of things in response to that. But we're going to stay simple. So the two responses that you're going to say to ma shlomek or ma shlomka are going to be lotov or tov. You can probably infer what they mean. Lotov is not well, and tov is, is well. So let's go ahead and practice this. Let's say you see a girl on the street and want to start a conversation with her to see if she knows Hebrew so that she can help you get to the bookstore that you've been searching for. You want to start your conversation by asking how she is. What do you say? Shalom, mashlomka. So, shalom is just the greeting for hello, literally meaning peace. And you've heard me use that before, so I would usually include that as just the way we would say hello in English in this context, right? And then she's a woman, so you're going to say mashlomka to ask, how are you? Oh no, she responds, lotov. She isn't doing well. Maybe you shouldn't ask her to help you get to the bookstore. She seems to be having a bad day and is in a hurry. But thankfully, another person comes along who might be able to help. He's a guy. How are you going to start your conversation off with him? Shalom, mashlomek. Well, he responds, tov. Oh, good. He's doing well. He seems to be a good person to ask. Ata mavin englit? Do you understand English? And then can help me get to the bookstore. Well, that's your Hebrew for the day. Everyone is coming along quite nicely with your key phrases, so keep up the great work. We're just arriving here at Joseph's Tomb on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. So let's hop on off the bus and head over. Joseph's Tomb is located here in Shechem, in the West Bank. We've actually been in the West Bank all this time. And what that means is that this area is controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Some other sites we visited that are controlled by the Palestinian Authority include the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and the Tomb of the Patriarchs in Hebron. Those are two sites that we've been to, right? The Tomb of the Patriarchs, just to remind you, was the cave that Abraham bought for Sarah and then where the patriarchs and matriarchs of Judaism are buried. 
Now, as you might be able to guess, it's a rather political site. So originally, this was controlled by the Israelis when they had control of the West Bank following the Six-Day War in 1967. But in the year 2000, problems arose when Palestinians and Israelis were actually killed when they fought in this area around the tomb. And that's what prompted the Israeli army to give control of the site to the Palestinian police, who actually ended up letting a mob come by and ransack this area. Tension between the Israelis and the Palestinians became so great that Jews could not even come to this tomb on their own. They were only allowed to visit once a month, and the visits had to be done at the discretion of the Palestinian Authority. So with that geopolitical background concerning the site, let me tell you why Joseph's tomb, which we're about to go in and see, actually doesn't receive an A+, like Jacob's well, on the authenticity meter. So first we have to consider the background on Joseph and his burial process. And this takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis and Egypt. At the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph tells his brothers that he is about to die. But he tells them not to worry. God will come to your aid, he says. Now, I'm sure his brothers are concerned about the prospect of Joseph dying. We have to remember that the only reason his brothers are living is because of Joseph. A famine struck the land of Israel, and Jacob sent his sons to Egypt. Little did they know that the brother they had tried to get rid of years earlier would be the one who would give them food when they had none. With that in mind, they probably saw Joseph as a bit of a savior. But Joseph reminds them that God, not he, is the one who will bring them back to the land promised to them, the land that we, virtual voyagers, are standing in right now. All Joseph wants is to be brought back to Israel when they return, and so he makes them swear an oath. He says, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph dies in Egypt, is embalmed, and placed in a coffin. And the next time we hear about the bones of Joseph is in Exodus, when Moses and the Israelites are actually fleeing the Egyptians and about to cross the Red Sea. The book of Exodus says that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. And so obviously the Israelites had passed down the message that Joseph made them swear that his bones needed to be taken back to Israel for burial. So even as the Israelites are being pursued by the Egyptians, Moses will not let go of Joseph's bones, and they come with him. Finally, Joseph's bones make it back to Israel, as detailed in the book of Joshua. The Israelites assemble under Joshua at Shechem and renew their covenant with God. The Bible goes on to say that Joseph's bones are finally buried in the land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver, from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Joseph's final wish is fulfilled. He is buried in Israel. So now we're left with a question. Is this the location of Joseph's tomb? Well, there's, there's really no archaeological evidence for this being the location of Joseph's tomb. We know Joseph's bones were brought back to this area. I mean, come over this way. You'll notice that we're standing in front of this little building, and inside is the tomb. And look at it. I mean, it doesn't quite make sense, as there's nothing that necessarily clues us in to this structure being anywhere near ancient. Some have claimed that this was just a Samaritan site 
that the, the Jews eventually tried to take over when they brought back the bones. But considering we don't hear anything about this exact location in Jewish writing prior to the 5th century, uh, it would seem that view really isn't supported. So we've already examined what the Bible says concerning the location of Joseph's bones. It tells us he was buried in Shechem, but we don't get a specific location. We're left with this little building and inside a rectangular stone structure supposedly marking the burial place of Joseph. Ultimately, I'm not sold. I believe what the Bible says, Joseph's bones are somewhere in this area, but are they right there in that little building? You know, I don't know if that's a fair statement. Shechem is big and there's a lot of places where Joseph's bones could have been buried. And considering this place only started popping up more recently in the grand scheme of the timeline of Joseph's bones and the eventual burial, I'm really just not sold. But, but still, let's go inside and examine it. Here, come to this box of sorts. This is the tomb, or it's said to be. Take a few minutes to wander around, pray, and reflect on everything we've just learned. It's up to you to make a decision as to what you believe concerning this site. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Virtual Voyage, the Armchair Travel Show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventure in Shechem.